So this week, uh, we are here with Amanda Bailey, who grew up in Gilderland in upstate New York um, and has been living in Beirut, Lebanon. Uh, She recently released a documentary about the Syrian refugee crisis uh, that is filmed through the eyes of one uh, Syrian mother. Amanda, um, you start the film with Sham's two young children telling the story of coming over the Mediterranean Sea to the you know Greek island of Lesbos, which according to the UN um, saw the death of nearly 4,000 people just last year alone. None of them can swim, Sham nor her two children, um, and the crowded raft starts sinking. They're bailing it out with plastic bags. But the children in the movie... Um, sort of, you know, bright-eyed, wide eyes, tell it like it's sort of an adventure story. So why start the movie that way? Why start with that scene? It was actually a no-brainer for me to start the film like that. Um, I think in this whole crisis, what is missing from so many people is a personal connection to what's happening. Um, It it seems very abstract to people. The numbers are huge. It's very easy to dismiss it as not related to us. And when you see the kids in the beginning of the film, you see they are as charming, um, intelligent, funny, vulnerable um, as anyone else's kids. And I think to see them tell this really harrowing story in the way that a kid is supposed to tell it Um, helps us put it into perspective that these are two kids taking a raft across the sea because the world offered no safer solution. I mean, the whole movie is really shown through the eyes of Sham and her children. I mean, it's really, it's not so much, you know, telling a story as it is just sort of seeing you know, for a very brief time, what it's like to, you know, walk endlessly down train tracks and through the woods in Eastern Europe, you know, heading north to Germany. Um, And so you, you know, you feel hungry and you feel tired when you're watching it. Um, And you're sort of grateful for small kindnesses from strangers, you know, who give them water along the way. Um, So why, why choose to do the film that way rather than, sort of tell a story about a family and their journey. So I, I felt like there are so many stories out there. There are many films, there are many news articles that tell us what's happening. Um, and despite all of this, people have chosen to turn away from what's happening. It's, for whatever reason, it's not resonating with people. So I felt like if I could give people the opportunity to actually experience what it's like to make these, these steps with her, to see the behind the scenes moments of, of humor, of violence, of hunger, of, you know, aching legs, for example, um, these are things that we can identify with. Um, and to be able to join them on this journey, I think is, is um, a new a new way in for many people. I mean, in some ways, it's it's you're curious just to know what happens, but also you know that this is actually happening 
to someone and it's not just them you know that there's a million other people who have done the same thing and I mean parts of it look I mean and you're there too filming and it looks very dangerous I mean you know there are police with riot gear and heavy you know weaponry were there times when you were filming this that you were frightened or scared I mean what what was what was sort of the scariest moment for you in the in the making of the movie So there's such a lack of information when you're out in this journey, or at least when I was there, it was, you know, still fairly fresh um, in the in the process. But um, nobody knew where to go. There was just you're in the middle of nowhere and there's no one saying, you know, go left, go right. There's a stop ahead. So, you know, a lot of it is just sort of a fear of the unknown and uncertainty and the threat of all of these borders ahead closing before you can cross. I mean, we crossed into Hungary, um, I think 48 hours before Hungary closed the borders and then they're still closed today. Um, so that fear of just not knowing was huge. Now for me, I had the privilege based on my passport and where I'm from to be able to walk away from this at any time. Um, so I, I don't I can't say that I personally felt afraid but I know that there were moments where I did feel fear and everyone around me did too and they didn't have the choice to walk away um, and you know there's it's mostly fear of the police you're in these small towns that haven't been trained um, the police haven't been trained to deal with a million people passing through and suddenly there's just a constant stream of people And you can't communicate with them. Um, there were very few translators at this point, very few international organizations. And so there was just such a clear inability to communicate and to understand each other and a fear on both sides that things escalated at almost every point that I was at. I mean, every single crossing, I think 10,000 people were crossing when I was there. So it's just huge numbers of people and this chaotic system to which nobody has you know figured out how to manage yeah how does communication happen between you know police at these various borders um and refugees who are coming through what does that communication look like so there's very little communication between police and um the refugees moving through in a in the best case scenario there's a refugee who speaks a few words of English and there's a police officer who speaks a few words of English um, and keywords like stop and go back and and that's about it but I mean it's absolutely the lack of communication resulted in violence um, and when I was there you know things did change after I le- after I had passed through but when I was there there was such little help from uh, major international organizations. At that point, it was mostly, you know, Good Samaritans in these tiny villages um, in the Balkans and in the rest of Europe that, uh, you know, went out of their way to provide water, electricity, um, the small things that, that people needed on the route. Yeah, that's interesting. So there, there were, would you say when you were going through that it, most of the people who came out were there to be supportive of refugees coming out to bring water or to help with communication or something like that more than um, sort of trying to thwart refugees coming through? 
Yeah, I, the, when I traveled, I saw, I can count on my one hand the number of times I saw any sort of anti-refugee sentiment. I mean, I, I know it's there, I've read about it, I know refugees are very afraid of it in Europe and in the U.S. now. Um, personally, I didn't see a lot of it. I saw families filling up water bottles on the side of the road for people. Um, you know, some of the most touching moments in the film for me are are the small moments where, for example, a family's walking on a train track and apparently they had asked uh, people who were passing before if they had any water and they didn't have water. So the family in the car went back, filled their water bottles and brought it to this family on the train track. And the family that I was walking with was so touched by that. And, you know, I, I like to think, at least, that these are the moments that actually stand out more than the negative ones. I can't remember the details of the negative ones. It was just these beautiful moments of welcoming um, that really resonated with people. Yeah. And it sounds like, so English is, sounds like it's kind of the common denominator language between, you know, between people. Um, but you must speak Arabic, yeah. To communicate with, with Sham and her family? Yeah. She's also an Arabic teacher. Um, but how, I mean, being from upstate New York, I mean, how did you learn Arabic? Was it sort of a concerted effort, like taking classes, or was it just being in Lebanon? I started studying in college in Morocco um, for a study abroad semester, and then was always interested. And I worked at Human Rights Watch for five years, and I did tutoring there, and I did university classes um, and then when I moved to Lebanon two and a half years ago, I was really focusing on learning how to film and learning Arabic. And I happened to make a film about an Arabic teacher. Um, and so two and a half years later, my, my Arabic is, is much better. <laughs> so at how, how did you end up in Beirut? I mean, what was your path path there? So I worked at Human Rights Watch as a video producer for many years before I moved to Beirut. And my many of my responsibilities there were related to the Middle East and North Africa, and particularly Syria. Um, so I had been very closely following what had happened in Syria since the revolution started, and then it became a war. Um, and so, you know, I had a, a strong interest in what was happening, um, you know, on, in the headlines and on the ground, but I wanted to actually be here and not be in an office in New York. Um, so I left my job at Human Rights Watch and I moved to Beirut and decided to uh, be an independent producer and take on projects um, from Beirut. Wow. So when... Before you made this movie, I mean, were you sort of looking to do a film that would show this issue or you met her, you met Sham and sort of found your way to making the film through her? When I, when I started this project, I was wanting to tell the story of somebody who was affected by U.S. immigration policy. You know, in Lebanon, there's 1.5 million Syrian refugees. It's a quarter of the population in this country. And... At that point, the U.S. had accepted less than 2,000 refugees. So I was looking for a way to highlight what I thought was a failure then to respond to the Syrian refugee crisis. And the thought of a feature-length documentary did not cross my mind. Um, but I met Sham doing another project, you know, for an hour or something. And 
there's something about her, and you see you see it in the film. I hope it's it's her strength and her spirit and her her sheer determination to do anything she wants to do. And so I met her, and I knew at that point she had been waiting uh, 15 months to be resettled to the U.S. She had gotten no response to that point, and I knew either she's going to be accepted to the U.S. Or she's going to take matters into her own hands, which in this case meant going to Europe with smugglers. And, you know, so many Syrians were doing that at this point. So I thought, you know, I'll stay in touch with this woman and I'm going to somehow tell her story. And then it wasn't until I actually convinced her to let me fly to the Greek islands after meeting her for an hour. I got there and I saw that, you know, on this island where people are feeling helpless and, you know, completely out of control of the situation. I see this woman taking charge of her, herself, her life, and her family um, in this incredible, fierce way. And I thought, you know, I have to see where this goes. I have to see where she ends up, how her life evolves, because she's sort of the best-case scenario for somebody moving to a new place, for a refugee to arrive. Yeah. So you said you had only met her for, and how how did you meet her? I met her filming for another project about um, the vulnerabilities of being a woman refugee in Lebanon. It was about um, you know how the laws here don't protect women, which contributed to her deciding to make this journey. And so, why do you think that you know having met her in this sort of you know brief context? Why do you think she, you know, invited you to come along with she and her children as they made this, you know, huge journey? I wouldn't say she invited me at the beginning. It was more of a, <laughs> Sham, please can I follow you on what is likely going to be a very, very difficult uh, couple of days um, or weeks, actually. Uh and it was me telling her, you know, the world needs to hear your story. Your, your story is the story of, of this time. You know, this is the biggest human rights crisis. And you are, the, you are the face of the people that we're failing. And, you know, she agreed in the moment. Um, I can't tell you why she agreed in that moment. But as we've talked about it over the last two years and, you know, gotten much further in our relationship and in the film... She said to me that she wants people in the U.S. to to see her and to see that this is the face of who is being turned away. You know, it is it is her and her two kids that could have died in this raft because the U.S. didn't accept them. And she also wants women to see her, and I think that's really important for her. You know, she's defied a lot of um, a lot of societal expectations and gender expectations. And I think, you know, she's proud of her strength as she should be. And what about for you? I mean, I I feel like probably living in Beirut looks different to you than it did to her. I mean, at, at one point in the movie, I think she references like being threatened with rape by, um, you know, some of the Lebanese officers, uh, you know, who are dealing with her citizenship issue. Um I mean, what, what is it like for you as a Western woman um, to kind of see the way that, you know, women from other 
other cultures or countries are treated? I mean, what, what is it like to sort of navigate that country differently um, than, you know, the people you're, you're talking with? Yeah, so uh, Lebanon, and um, this is categorically true of Lebanon, Turkey, and Jordan, the three countries that neighbor Syria and where the majority of Syrian refugees now are, the system is entirely unequal for a refugee a local and somebody who has a visa to be to be here like me um you know sham has had when she was in lebanon had almost no protection i mean to go to the police means to expose that expose yourself to sexual exploitation financial exploitation um you know if if an employer didn't pay her fair wages she has absolutely no means of recourse um in in general women are not paid a fair wage and those you know i can't name a single syrian refugee here who's paid what would we would consider a fair wage um and you know the system is entirely different for me and it's entirely different uh for lebanese people and you know it's by virtue of my passport which you know, you really have to stop and think about what the word privilege means because she, you know, we all know that everyone should have the same entitlement to recourse and law enforcement and protection. Yeah. Um, so you majored in journalism at Boston University. Um, so is, is this journalism that you're doing um, with movies like this? Or is it advocacy? I consider myself a human rights activist before a journalist and even before a filmmaker. I came at this story, you know, as a human rights activist first and foremost, not as a journalist and not as a filmmaker even. I have a message. I'm very clear about it. And I'm using this film in every way possible to encourage dialogue and to share a very uh, clear message that I want our country to be a place of welcoming. Um, and so, yeah, what, what are you hoping that the movie is going to produce? I mean, what, what would you like to see as the outcome? So we've been doing a series of community screenings since March. We premiered in Albany in March, these community screenings. And what we try to do is bring together very local uh, experts on the refugee issue. So we bring somebody from a refugee support group or a resettlement group. We bring a politician who, um, you know, is responsible for policies locally that will affect refugees. And then we try to bring refugees to the screenings to be able to share their own experience, to show the community their face, and to sort of break that break down that barrier. And we've seen incredible results since March. We've been in Florida across Florida, across New York State, Vermont, Washington State. And what we're seeing is that there is this absolutely overwhelming response from communities who are feeling frustrated with federal policies, who feel that uh, the current administration is not representing how they feel about refugees. And so they're taking action. And I've had people in our audiences stand up, offer jobs, offer to mentor, to tutor, offer rent assistance to someone who is being threatened with eviction, and to just stand up and face 
the refugee families in the audience and, and say to them, you know, we are so glad you're here. We are here to do anything that you need to feel supported and welcomed. And for me, that's, that's the goal. I mean, we still, despite the policies at the federal level, we all have the potential to, to really impact the lives of refugees in our communities and to change their trajectory so that they have a better future than we offered to Shem and her kids. Um, and so are, can people host these screenings themselves? Is there a way? What, what can people do if they want to sort of show, show the movie and start a discussion? So we've set it up so that anyone can host a screening of the film. And we've partnered with really important partners, including Ben & Jerry's, Welcoming America, Amnesty International, Books Not Bombs, The Women's March. And all of these groups uh, together, we want to make this film available to anyone that wants to bring people together for a discussion, whether it's your neighborhood, um, a Syrian supper club group, a, um, you know, a women's group, church group, etc. We want the film to be available. So on our website, 8borders8days.com, we make it super easy and we guide everyone through the process and we provide a discussion guide we provide experts that can come to screenings and speak and we just want it to be a tool to bring people together and open dialogue um and it recently won uh was it a fifty thousand dollar sif s-i-f-f i'm not sure which which it is uh filmmaking grant um so is that to fund future projects or to help with the marketing of of this movie what what is your what is your next move? So the Seattle International Film Festival put out a call to fund one film related to immigration currently in the U.S. And so we were awarded this grant, and it allows us to really implement this series of community screenings. We have a small team, and we're working around the clock, and you know, really, really determined. But it's it's a an intensive process, and we're targeting strategic places. Um, you know, the Midwest, Texas places where either there's high numbers of refugees or very vocal anti-refugee sentiment. And so our team and all of our partners are working together to really make sure that this film gets to those places that, that perhaps have never heard the story of, of a single refugee before. That's interesting. So you're looking to, to bring this movie to places that actually have strong anti-refugee yep. sentiment. And how, how do you identify what those locations are and how, and how do you approach bringing a movie like this to a place you know that it's not really welcome? So when I say not really welcome, um, I mean either there's been you know, groups of very vocal community members or politicians that have been very vocal and, and not wanting refugees. But, for example, we were in Rutland, Vermont last week, which has received global attention as being an unwelcoming city. We were there on World Refugee Day, and we had more than 500 people show up offering support and asking what they can do to support refugees. So even in the most you know, unwelcoming of places on paper, there is a group in every single one of those towns that is responding with equal and opposite positive force. And so we're really trying to tap into those groups. You know, there's the church community, the faith communities are huge there and they're you know this they are so responsible for you know a lot of the the charity work in this country and abroad and 
um, you know, we have faith that in these places, there's still going to be groups that will partner with us. All right, great. Well, is there anything I didn't ask about that I should have, um, you know, that you think is important or interesting? Yeah, I guess one thing. So we just launched a campaign called Eight Borders, Eight Days, Eight Ways. And it's going to be a rotating um, circuit of eight ways to directly and immediately support refugees. And it's available on our website. And one of the ways is through a local Albany support group called New York for Syrian Refugees. And you're able to sign up to sponsor internet for one family um, or as many families for as many months as you want on the website. And, you know, they've identified that in Albany, this is a huge need. Um, You know, it's about $40 a month per family and it allows kids to catch up in school. It allows um, parents to look for work. And so we are hoping that the Albany community um, can really get involved in that way. Yeah. So I'm, is there a Syrian refugee community in Albany? I mean, how, how big is it? How significant? We work with New York for Syrian refugees in Albany quite frequently. And they support about 40 families, mostly Syrian, but some Iraqi. And, you know, each family come with several children. Um, so there is a very active community in Albany. And because, you know, I'm from Albany, I've gotten to do a lot of work with them. And you would, yeah, we're blown away by the response of the Albany community. I mean, I've been able to see the response across the country now. And Albany is a beacon of welcoming. I mean, the the response, we can't even manage how the response from the community. But people, you know, people are still, although yesterday that might have changed, but people were still arriving as of last month. Um, there's a young man who got here last month. His his family was all killed in a bomb attack in his house in Syria, and he's in Albany alone. He doesn't speak English, and he has no resources. Um, so they are eager for jobs, for safe housing, um, for mentorship and friendship. And if you go to New York for Syrian Refugees website or their Facebook page, um, it's really, really simple to get involved. And it's a really fun community, both Albany locals and new neighbors. All right. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that you made the time and, and we could do this. Yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs>